Make sure you pray for Noah. He's confused all the time about which job he has at any, any given time. So make sure you pray for him, especially since his best friend appears to be a flamingo. So <clears throat> pray. Pray for him. Well, good morning to all of you. Welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, glad you've chosen to be a part of our day. You've heard a number of things there. Some of wonder taking place. Volunteers needed in children's ministries. Be aware of some of those things as we are uh, getting ready to reopen and, and relaunch everything back to as close to normal as it gets uh, coming up this fall. So just be aware of those things. I want to give you two dates. Remember right, right off top of your head, September 11th and September 19th. September 11th is the corn roast, so that's coming up. It's a Friday, I mean a Saturday. And then the 19th is the day we have set aside to to call Back to Church Sunday. On both of those days, I want you to be thinking right now about who you would invite to the event. Who would you invite to come with you to the corn roast? Who would you invite with you to come on that Sunday of Back to Church Sunday? Back to Church Sunday, we've got a number of things planned. Um, It's kind of hard to to firmly say this will happen the way that this thing kind of works in our area, but our hope is to have uh, 15 to 20 food trucks on here that Sunday and have it just be a fun day of Back to Church, welcoming one another, seeing each other again. And our hope, my dream, and my prayer would be that you'd be bringing someone with you first to the corn roast. Uh, we, we hadn't had it last year. We've, we've missed it. It's the perfect opportunity to bring someone for the first time to anything. No pressure, just corn. Um, and um, opportunity to come back. And then back to church Sunday on September 19th. And hopefully uh, you can be thinking right now about who you might be, be bringing with you. And I'll talk more about that as the weeks get a little bit closer. So just be aware of those things um, and uh, begin thinking, thinking forward and be excited for the things that are coming in starting up around us. Let me give you a quick story. I shared with you that I had been gone for a couple weeks and been doing a funeral. One of the funerals out of town was for Diane's uncle, of course my uncle too by marriage, um, Uncle Merlin. Now Uncle Merlin's last name is Soderstrom. Uh, They have a long Swedish history. Um, And again, I shared this uh, last week, you can track their history and their families loving Jesus for generations. Back back to Sweden, loving Jesus, coming here. I mean, just I've, I've never seen anything like it. And I get to be a part of that. So it's been a, a rare treat to have just these generations of followers of Christ. So Uncle, so- Uncle, Uncle Merlin, last name Sodder. So I mean, when I first came into the family, they said, well, nobody calls him Merlin. Everyone calls him Sod. I mean, that's been, his, that's been his nickname forever, Sod. He's been a teacher in the local school district for 38 years, a town of Malacca, Minnesota, where they not only uh, lived, but he worked in the school district. They attended the Baptist church in town. Everyone called him Sod. So I came into the family, so we can call him Sod. I can't call him Sod. Um, you know, my upbringing is he's Uncle Merlin. So even in the funeral service, the, his home pastor, they had lived in Malacca, Minnesota for 50 years and then had recently moved into the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, to live with their kids. So they now had a new church. And uh, I did the service with that pastor. And even that pastor called him Sod. And it's still it's just uh, it's Uncle Merlin. So it's the morning of the funeral. We, we are staying in Malacca, which is an hour and an hour and a half-ish out of the cities. And it's the morning of the funeral. And I'm, of course, I'm officiating at the funeral. So we get in the car and we head off in the morning. I'm in the front seat. My mother-in-law would be Merlin's sister sitting beside me. Behind me is Diane. And then the other side is her sister, Debbie. So I've got three women in the car while I'm driving. <clears throat> I, all I, all I just, I'm just giving you the facts of what was taking place. You draw your own conclusions. I got three of them. I'm on the highway. I'm going down the road about 10 miles from home. I come over a little crest. Now, there's there's no hills in Minnesota, not in this area anyway, just a little crest. And here is a highway patrol. Uh, They're their version of the state troopers. And he's in the median and immediately he's starting to roll by the time I even get to him and he pulls right out behind me and I know I'm speeding. There's not a question about it in my mind. And I just go, ah, I can't believe it. I'm going to get stopped. And of course, my sister-in-law who lives in the area, she goes, you know, I can't believe you're going to get stopped. I go 80, 85 down this road all the time. I never get stopped. That does not help me. 
at this point in time saying that you never get stopped does not help me. Sure enough, right behind me, all the lights come on. You know that, just that sickening feeling. You know, first they're right behind you for a while. Every light comes on. I mean, just turn one light on. I'll pull off, you know, but you know, don't, don't make a show out of it, you know. So I pull over. I know I was speeding. So I already grabbed my license, my registration, have it in hand, and he comes up to the side window, and he walks up, nice young guy, walks up, and he puts his head, and he starts to say, do you know why? And I stop him. I go, you don't even need to ask me why you stopped me. I know why you stopped me. I was going fast, very fast. Here's my license and my registration. He goes, well, thank you. He said, so where are you headed this morning? I said, well, we're on our way into the cities. And of course, that's the term you use there. Everyone knows that we're on our way into the cities for a funeral. And um, I said, in fact, I'm the minister who's going to do the funeral. <laughs> I said, it doesn't look good for me. I understand. But I, that's what we're, we're headed. He goes, oh. He goes, um, Saad's funeral? <laughs> I said, pardon? He goes, Saad, you doing Saad's funeral? And I went, uh-huh, Saad, yeah, love Saad. <laughs> and my sister-in-law rolls on the window. She goes, do you know him? And he says this, he goes, no, I don't know him, but I'm an elder in the Baptist church where Saad was an elder and member for 40 years. And he said, I just had coffee this morning. This is the outside the road. I had coffee this morning with the men's group at church. And they were talking about Saad, and one of the guys is on his way to the cities this morning for Saad's funeral. So everyone knows about him, been in the church for years. Wait right here. It's like, okay. I'm embarrassed, and I'm thrilled at the idea <laughs> that I got a family connection. He walks up, and he goes, I'm just going to give you a warning today. And I said, you know what? That's undeserved grace. Figure he understood the language of the church. I said, that's undeserved grace. And in honor of your grace, I'm going to go the speed limit the rest of the way. <laughs> That'd be a good thing. Have a nice day. And off we went. Uh, you know, I sat there thinking to myself afterward. Now, one, I was thrilled to not get a ticket. Should have. Should have gotten a ticket. I mean, it's pure grace, Right. It's pure grace. You know, I, I, and I've never been one of those people, just so you know, that when I stop, I go, oh, I wasn't, you know, they just, I wasn't going that fast. Or the traffic was going faster. So I, all those kind of things. My attitude is if I do get stopped, chances are there's a thousand times I had that I should have. And so I was being very sincere when I said to him, I was speeding. I, there, there you go. And uh, all for sod. And he goes, yep, I'm, a mem I'm an elder in the Baptist church. And I just thought, so one, thank you for a testimony well lived, and I got to do better. Right? Now, just in reality, that's not the end of the world, but it's a moment where you stop and you say, yeah, we ought to do a little bit better. We're talking about in our series, we're talking about the church. We're talking about what Jesus has to say to the church and what Jesus has to say, of course, to us. And that's the series that we're in. We're studying together seven short letters that were written to seven churches in Asia, seven churches that we find in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Now, before we get into this morning, let me just ask you a question. Put it this way. If you could, if Jesus were in town... And in fact, he gave you a call and he said, hey, you know, Scott, I'm going to be in town and you can search your name there. I'm going to be in town. Let's get, let's have coffee. You know, not only does uh, New England run on Dunkin', but heaven runs on Dunkin'. Let's meet at Dunkin' Donuts and we'll have coffee. And so you sit down and you're having coffee eye to eye, person to person with Jesus. And you look at him and you say, hey, I got a question to you, for you. You know, you got a better view than I have of the world. And you see the church and all that's going on. And I mean, you see all the things that are taking place. You see COVID in the world and all of these issues. You see persecution in the world. And in some places, there's no persecution. You see poverty in some places, incredible wealth. But if you look at the whole church, Jesus, just what's your take on it? I mean, what's your take on the church? What do you think? What would you say to the church today? What do you think he would say? Now, as you're thinking about that, what do you think he would say about just his take on the church today? I'll tell you two things as you think about it. First of all, your view of what he might say is going to be greatly, of course, determined by the bubble in which you live right here. Our bubble right here. Which is why it's good to ask him the question because he's got a bigger bubble than us. So he sees the whole picture, not our little obscure picture that we see in a very limited terms. But the second thing I would say to you is you don't have to wonder what he would say because we know what he would say. You see, there's this great truth about the person of Christ. 
He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which means we know exactly what he would say. In fact, we're studying what he would say to the church today. Because depending on where the church is at would depend on what he would say about the church. Churches have different circumstances. We Christians have different circumstances. We sit in different places. We have different bubbles. And so his words just might be a little different depending on what we're facing. And what he had to say to the church, he said to those seven churches. Last week we talked about what he would say to a busy church. To a busy church he would say, hey, first things first. Don't forget your first love. And we're going to talk in these next few weeks about what he would say to a confused church or confused Christians, to tolerant churches and tolerant Christians, to growing churches, to dying churches, to complacent churches. And today we're going to see what Jesus has to say to his church in times of suffering. What would Jesus say to a suffering church? What would Jesus say to suffering Christians? Now, last week, as I said, it was the church of Ephesus. And talking to Christians who are so busy, they had lost their first love. And this morning, we'll talk about the church in Smyrna. That's one of the letters we're going to look at next and what Jesus has to say to a suffering church. Last week was first things first. This week is look up and look forward. When you're too busy, you got too many things going, and you kind of lose track in the world, get first things first right. Get your first love back in order. Second thing would be in suffering, in difficult times, always look up and always look forward. And we'll see how that plays out this morning. My hope and prayer today, I'll tell you right up front. My hope and my prayer today is that you would hear Jesus Christ speak to you today as clearly as he spoke some 2,000 years ago. Because you see, we still suffer. We still go through difficult times. And there are some of us who are here today, who are listening today, who are doing so because of the suffering you're going through and you're hoping and looking for hope. So my prayer really would be this morning that you would hear what Jesus has to say to you and to us this morning in living reality. Now we all suffer, some more and some less, but all differently, but we all suffer. And Jesus has some things to say to us that will help us. Here's our text this morning from Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and last who died and came to life again. Stop right there real quickly. Just remember, this is Jesus talking to the church. These are the words of Christ spoken to us. He's, writing, he's speaking to us through, the, through, through John, the Apostle John, who's writing them down. But make no mistake, these are his words. He tells us again, the, one, the words of him who's first and last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. There's our text this morning, and so let's jump in. He's writing to the church of Smyrna, a short little letter to the church in Smyrna. Now, it's very important that to understand the different letters, to understand as much background as we can get. So let me give you the background of this little town, or I should say this, this large town called Smyrna. Smyrna was a large, rich, and popular place. It had an incredible harbor, a great harbor, which in that day meant it had wealth. Because of its protected harbor, it meant it was going to be a center for trade, a center for commerce, even for transportation. So it was a thriving town. It had a major street that, had came, from, that came up from the harbor area that would go right through town until it came to a hill which sat in the middle of Smyrna. And that street, when it came to that, would wrap around like a, per, like a circle around that, that hill and then keep going out of town. But if you came into the main street, and it was called the Golden Street, that was the name. When you came into the town, you walk in, hit the Golden Street, keep following the Golden Street, you'll come to the hill, you'll circle the hill, and you'll walk right into the harbor. And of course, along every side of the Golden Street was all sorts of shops and stores and commerce, places to buy. It was a thriving, rich, and wealthy place. Imports and all sorts of things that you could get all down the Golden Street. 
It circled this hill, as I said, and they called it the crown. Because of the golden street and this hill in the middle, they called the, that hill the crown. And all, they also then gave a nickname for the jewels in the crown. Because you see, located on this hill in the middle of the town were all of the temples, all of the ornate temples to every kind of God you could imagine. So they would call it the golden street, they would call it the crown, and of course every crown has what? Jewels. And the jewels of the crown were all of these ornate temples, to temples to Zeus and to Apollos and Aphrodite and many others. It was a beautiful street. It was a beautiful city from everything that history records. In fact, the people prided themselves on being the most beautiful city in all of Asia. They had wealth and they had culture. They prided themselves on those realities. Now you have to get this picture. As a Christian, follower of Jesus, walking through that city, those followers of Christ wouldn't fit. They wouldn't fit. They didn't fit in. They didn't fit in into this pagan culture. They're, they were outsiders looking in through the window, if you will. They lived there, but they're outside looking in. In best case, they were bullied by everyone else. In worst case, they were severely persecuted. And all of that took place. Some simply bullied, some horribly persecuted. So what did Jesus have to say to them? And what does Jesus have to say to us? And it may not just be persecution, but the whole, the whole title here would be, what does he have to say to a suffering church? What does he say to people who are going through times of suffering in our lives? And friends, we know this life well, right? There are times we go through suffering. Sometimes, sometimes for the cause of Christ, specifically for the cause of Christ. Now, let's be honest. We don't face suffering for the cause of Christ here like other places around the world. And so let's admit that. But still, persecution can take place. But also, the suffering we face just going through life and the things that may happen. And every one of us, to every single one of us, he starts by saying these words, I know. The first thing that Jesus would say to a suffering church would be the simple words, I know. Verse 8 and 9, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and last, who died and came to life again. And there it is, I know. I know your afflictions. I know you are poor. I know you live in poverty. I know you go without. I know that you are in need. I know what they say about you. I know what they have done to you. He starts by saying, I know. I see it. He knows my name. He knows my life. He knows my circumstances. He knows my hurts and my fears. He knows what you're going through. Not a thing happens in your life that he misses. Oftentimes, I have a funeral sermon that I preach. I've used this sermon probably more than any other through all the years of ministry because it's a, it's a, it's a tr truth from Scripture that I just keep coming back to. I want to tell those truths. But one of the things I say in that, in that sermon, and many of you have perhaps heard the sermon, Jesus in John chapter 14, he's leaving. He just told his disciples that he's about to leave, that he's going to die. And man, they're a wreck. Their hearts are troubled. They're in turmoil. And he begins by giving them some things that will help them. And he begins by these words, don't let your hearts be troubled. He starts with those words. And one of the things that I tell in this sermon, and I'll say to you this morning again to make sure we're on the same page, with every human life and every human heart comes trouble, right? No one is immune. I mean, somehow we Christians often think that we should be immune. We should be immune from troubles. We should be immune from heartache. We should be immune from suffering. But it affects every single one of us, right? I mean, every human heart comes with troubles. Now, it's important for you to know. It's important for you to remember that. And I'll give you a key reason why in just a moment. I've said this through the years. Every doctor that delivers a baby, every judge that, uh, that presides over an adoption, before they hand that baby to the child, should take a stamp and stamp right on their head, troubles included, and hand off that baby and say, here's your baby, that thing will die, off. that die won't die off till about they're 18, but please know it's going to be there for a long, long time. Every judge that oversees an adoption, look at those parents and say, listen, I'm going to give you your baby now, there's a new name, but troubles included in that child's life. Now, here's why. You know why? Because when troubles, I mean, every one of us are affected by them. Every one of us have them. But the reason you remember that is because every time trouble hits our lives, you know how we feel? We feel isolated. We feel singled out. Every time I suffer, it's like, oh, why am I going through this? Look at all these other people that aren't going through what I'm going through. Yeah, maybe they're not. Maybe they are and you don't know. 
Or maybe they've just got their own suffering that they go through. See, every life has it. We all know it. And so he begins by saying, I know your troubles. I know that in this world's eyes, you are poor. Now, they were quite literally poor. I mean, they were in poverty because they were being persecuted. I know in the world's eyes, you are poor. And somehow they think that they're winning because they keep you poor. I know what people say about you. I know the criticism, the things that they say, that, and I know it hurts you. He says, listen, there's not a thing that happens in your life that I miss. There's not a thing that takes place that I don't see, that I am not aware of. There's nothing that's happened to you that I'm surprised by or confused by. He says, I know and I understand. He says, I understand what it means to be falsely accused. I understand what it means to be deprived of things. I understand what it means to be rejected by people. I understand what it's like that people talk about you. I understand what it's like to not fight back when you'd like to fight back. And I understand even what it's like to get a death sentence. I've sat with people through the years that have gotten some doctor's report and I've even heard them say those words, oh, I just got a death sentence. Maybe that's you, but I would say Jesus says, I know exactly what it's like to get a death sentence. Some of you, as I said already, are here this morning or watching and you came in today or turned on today because you're in a battle for your life and you're, you're hoping to find hope. I have, I have no doubt that God brought you here today to hear that very word of hope. So he begins by saying to the church and to me and to us, first, I want you to know, I know. But then he gives a second statement that he tells us, and it's in verse 10. He says, not only do I know, and then he lists all these things, but the second thing he would say would be, don't be afraid. Verse 10, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. He says, don't be afraid. Let's spend a little more time with this one, don't be afraid. This is one of the most common uh, and most frequent phrases that God uses in all of Scripture whenever he's talking to man. I mean, over and over again, he says the words to mankind, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Well, why is that? Because we're afraid. It's pretty simple. He says what we need to hear most often because that's where we live most of our lives. We live most of our lives in fear, so the most frequent statement he says is do not be afraid. Now, how do we pull that off in life? Let's be honest. Do not be afraid for what you're about to encounter. Do not be afraid for what you're about to suffer. Do not be afraid for what you face. How do we pull that off? I mean, let's be honest. Some of us have to get medicated to go to the dentist. I mean, I get, I get, I'm afraid every time Diane says, I have an idea. I got to tell you, that sends me to trembling. You know, how do you pull off, don't be afraid when she goes, I come home and she goes, hey, I've been thinking, I have an idea. It's like, ow. Right? How do you pull off, don't be afraid? I know people who come across as not afraid of anything, and they see a needle, boom, on the ground. You know, don't be afraid of this needle, boom, down they go. How do you pull that off? I don't care who you are, we all struggle with fears. And I've listed some fun ones, but how about the fear of being alone? How about the fear of cancer? How about the fear of being abandoned? How about just all of the real fears of life? Paying the bills, finding the money you need, keeping your job, whatever it might be. So how do we make this don't be afraid thing work in our lives? Because let's be really, really honest this morning. If we're truthful with one another, we don't pull that off really well. We have moments where we do, but there's lots of moments where we don't pull off the don't be afraid. And let's just hope that God didn't mean it when he said, do not fear or that sin. And I didn't, he didn't say that. I did. But let's just hope he doesn't mean that, right? Because if, it's, if he says, do not fear. And if you live in fear, if you have fear, fearful moments, you're going to be sinning. Man, we are all in trouble. So how do we pull that off when Jesus says, don't be afraid? Now, when he says, don't be afraid, he's not saying, pretend to not be afraid. He's also not saying, pretend that it doesn't hurt. Pretend that it doesn't stir you up inside. Pretend that you're not anxious. He's not saying that life doesn't hurt because it really does hurt. See, these words of Jesus are real. He's telling us how we are able to live in this life even when things are bad and are able to live without fear. You see, a fake world, Jesus would say this, don't be afraid, it's nothing. Well, it is something. 
A fake world Jesus would say, don't be afraid, nothing's going to happen. Well, things are going to happen. A fake world Jesus would say, don't be afraid, life is going to be perfect. Well, it's not going to be perfect. So that's what the fake world Jesus would say. But here's what the real world Jesus says. Don't be afraid for what you're about to suffer. See, I want that verse to read like this. Don't be afraid because you're not going to suffer. That's how I want it to read. But no, that'd be fake. The real Jesus says, don't be afraid for what you are about to suffer. But see, what Jesus said is actually very helpful. He's saying you don't have to be afraid even when you suffer. Let me explain this all and work it out here. Remember a couple of things. First thing is this. When Jesus says don't be afraid, he's not saying don't feel anything. When Jesus says not, don't be afraid, he's not saying just divorce yourself of any feeling. Don't be afraid does not mean not having any feelings of fear. It doesn't mean don't feel anything. He's not saying trust me in everything uh, so you don't have any feelings at all other than absolute trust. No, he is saying trust me in everything, but he's not saying to divorce your feelings and act like you don't have any of those feelings. When our kids were small, I'll give you an example. When our kids were small, Adam was small. I'm in the front yard doing some yard work and things. I'd park one of the cars, one of the cars in the street. Our driveway's on an incline, not, not huge, but enough. And I'm working, and Adam's out. He's little. I mean, you know, he's able to walk and hop on a bike, but not his tricycle, not much more. Um, but he's out front, and we're all putting around. Diane's out front, and we're doing different things. And for whatever reason, I happen to look in, in, in a quick moment, and I realize that he's hopped on his tricycle, and he's going downhill, and he can't stop. He doesn't know what he's doing. So he's going downhill, uh, and t- having the time of his life, I should say. I mean, he's on, legs out, ah, and he's going downhill. And I realize he, he's not, he can't stop. He's going to go th- into to the road and there's a car coming. I drop, I, I, I mean, I, I can, you can see all this. It's like slow motion. Parents, you've been there before. I, I can see this unfolding. It is slow motion where I realize all this taking place and we've got a serious issue. So by me stopping and saying, no, don't happen, really isn't going to help much, is it? No, I don't want this in my life. Nope. Adam, just stop. He doesn't know how to stop. So I can have all of these spiritual moments with God and I'm going to trust you in this moment. But that wouldn't seem realistic, right? You see, um, I could have stopped, not run, not done anything and say, I will stand here and not be afraid because I trust God. Well, I did trust God, but I still ran. And any one of us would get that. We would go, yep, that makes sense. I was afraid. I dropped the rake and I ran. Quite honestly, I got there, I mean, at the last possible second in time to grab him by the back of the shirt and pull him off the bike. The bike goes over and the car goes by. The car would never would have seen him because he was coming behind a parked car. Now, admittedly, this driver wasn't speeding, but at 15 to 20 miles an hour versus a little boy, that's potentially fatal. The car wins. So I scooped him up. I'm well aware of what's taking place. And there I stand just holding him. Now, would it have been more Christian of me to stop, do nothing, and pray and say, I have no feelings about this moment because I have absolute trust in God? Then every one of us here would say, that's just nonsense. It is nonsense. In part, that fear motivated me to action. Sometimes fear will do that in our lives. But that seems crazy, and I know that. That's why I want to give you that picture. Then after that moment, I stood there for a moment holding my son Thinking about all that could have happened. Which brings me to the second thing to remember. Remember, beware of being afraid of being afraid. Let me explain this to you. Be, beware of that. Remember the problems that can happen when you live in the fear of being afraid. After a while, I began to think about, all that, about that close call. I began to think about where we could be. In this split second, I'm holding my son in my arms, celebrating as opposed to cradling my son on the road. I mean, it all changes. And then I begin to think about what would happen if I hadn't got there? What, that does it. That's it. No more trikes. We're not going outside for playtime anymore. 
Doors are locked, we stay inside. Then you got to go through that routine in the house, right? What can happen in the house? You get what I'm talking about? What happens is we begin to lock in in all of the things that could have happened or could happen. And for many of us, we begin to project every bad thing that could happen in our lives. And we push that out ahead of us. And pretty soon, friends, we're not afraid of the things that actually are happening. We're living in the fear of the things that might happen. And there we are paralyzed. Listen carefully to this next statement. God does not give you the strength to face the problems that you don't have or that you might have. He will give you all the strength you need to face the problems that you actually do have. See, a lot of us get frustrated with God because we can't figure out why God doesn't show up with incredible strength when we're all just worked up and bothered about the things that might happen. He said, I'll be there for everything that you will encounter He's got all the strength in the world for the stuff that you actually face. But we get so wrapped up in the things that we might face. Wouldn't you agree that often, not always, but often our suffering is self-created by the worry that we have about the future? What I did in that moment holding Adam is I began to worry about all the other things that could be. And I can't begin, and so just kind of hear this out. I can't begin to tell you how many times I have counseled people through the years, going through some difficult times, and I've heard them say something like this. I was so afraid of getting cancer until I got it, and now I found God to be incredible. I was so scared about losing my job and, or not having enough money, and you know what? I hit the very bottom and didn't have any money. Guess what? I found God to be incredible. I was afraid of losing my wife. I was afraid of losing my husband. I always went through that fear that, that they might die before me. And, and I was so afraid of that. And you know what? I lost him or I lost her. I lost that son or I lost that daughter. The thing that I was so frightened of. And I have found God to be there in a way I'd never experienced before. Now, I'm not saying that it doesn't hurt when you go through those difficult times. It hurts terribly, and some of you know that far better than I. But I would say to you that until you've hit some of those really bad moments, you have never experienced the depth of God's grace. You've never met him like you can meet him until you have looked in a moment of saying, God, I am absolutely desperate. And you find God to be your strength. Now, I cannot tell you what you will or won't suffer in your life. But I think that we need to admit that for many of us, we struggle with what might happen far more than the reality of what actually does happen. We live in that world. We Americans, on top of that, I hear, and, and just recently with the COVID and the vaccine and other issues of the election, is we Americans seem to be wrapped up with the potential of persecution for the potential of what might happen, for the potential of things that might come, as opposed to the reality of things and the reality of persecution. I mean, I, I look at it all and I see where the, so much movement in our lives based on what might take place as opposed to just trusting God for what really does take place. I wonder how many times, I wonder how many Christians, maybe even how many are watching or listening, have sacrificed your Christian testimony, have not done what God told you to do, have not said what God told you to say because of the fear that you projected might happen if you did stand for him, if you did speak for him. Oh, but I do that. They might this, and we kind of we lay out all the things that could take place that, that settle us back down into complacency. You didn't act, you didn't speak because of what you thought people might do. A side note for you, we live in a world today, we got some Christians that have such a distorted view of God's word and what it means to be a follower of Christ. In all this culture we're in right now in the past, you know, year and a half or two years, I, I, I've actually, I've, I read online, I've been reading in, in, in uh, numbers of times of Christians that are taking an approach that said world persecution is coming, persecution of Christ is coming, but don't worry because we are going to band together. Uh, I saw one, one uh, blog, video type blog where it was a Christian guy guys saying, don't worry if you're afraid about the future, afraid of the government, afraid of, of where it's all headed, afraid of persecution. There's a group that's getting together. We're going to go off the grid. And they're going to go out in Montana off the grid. We've stockpiled supplies. We've stockpiled, stockpiled ammunition. And um, anyone's going to persecute us, they're going to pay, they're going to pay with their life. Now, 
how does that square up with Jesus says you're about to suffer and take it well? How does that square up? I mean, if you lean that way at all, Christians, how do you square that up with Scripture? Listen, the history we're talking about, these churches, I shared this with you before, just a reminder, that in 300 years, from roughly the time of the crucifixion of Christ, 300 years later, the entire Roman Empire became Christian. The entire Roman Empire, the whole known world became Christian, including Caesar. And they did not become Christian, and he did not become a follower of Christ because of a band of Christians who fought to the bitter end. He became a follower of Christ, and Christianity changed the world because of Christians who suffered well for the cause of Christ. Don't be afraid for what you're about to suffer. For I have formed a militia. Doesn't that just seem odd? No, please hear this. It's because of those Christians all through history that have suffered so well for Christ that the gospel continues to grow. Please have a larger view that actually includes eternity and actually includes an all-powerful God. Now, how do we have that kind of faith that helps you to not live in fear when facing some of these life difficulties? Let me give you a starting place. I've mentioned this countless times. I mentioned it last week. But one of the starting places is to have a regular quiet time with God. One of the ways that you deal with suffering, one of the ways you deal with fear, one of the days you deal with those things that rattle you inside is you have a regular time of spending quiet time with God. One of the things I would suggest for you is uh, the practice of reading through the Psalms. I mean, just as a regular basis. You can read anything else in Scripture you want as well and should read other parts, but make it a regular practice. Just read through the Psalms. Listen to what David wrote in Psalm chapter 3. And just a side note for you. David's writing this. He's penning these words. He wrote this after he has been chased out of the palace by his son, who's got armies, armies together, thousands of men strong, looking to kill David, looking to kill their father, his father. So he's been chased out of the palace. He's on the run again. He's being hunted by his son. Here's what he writes in Psalm chapter 3, verse 2. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. So you got people you know, not helping you here in their thought process. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. Catch this part. I love this part. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Now, what I love about that, I told that part, listen to that one part. I love about that is David starts with the most simple of things. He had, a, he had a, a lot of legitimate fear. I mean, he's literally surrounded by thousands who seek to kill him. Very legitimate. And what he says is really basic. He says this, you know what? I'm not going to let my fear dictate how I live my life. So you know what I did last night? Went to bed. Went to bed and I slept. And know what I did then? I got up in the morning. You know why? Because the sun's coming up in the morning. Because God put the sun in place. And everything that anyone else wants to do, they can't stop the sun from coming up because God is ultimately in control. Listen, friends, very carefully. You will never philosophize yourself out of your fears. You will never argue yourself out of your fears. But you can trust your way out of your fear. Trust always starts with reminding ourselves of the little things and the simple things. There's a son, I remember as a kid, I was in, in a Sunday school class, we remember that we sang the song when I was a little kid, I won't sing it for you, but there's a sun coming up in the morning, I'm as sure as I can be. There's a sun coming up in the morning, if you doubt it, wait and see. When the rain clouds come and everything goes wrong, put your trust in God and sing this happy song. There's a sun coming up in the morning, I'm as sure as I can be. Who would have thought that a kid at six or seven years old would have learned a song that has such great theological truth? Friends, it doesn't matter what happens in this world, God still has the world. And the sun is coming up the next day. Let me give you a definition that will help you here. Let me give you a definition of what it really means to not be afraid. You see, I think of all of us feel a little bit like spiritual failures when it comes to this thought of not being afraid because we know how fear comes into our lives. We've got fear, we've got anxious moments and some anxiety, apprehension. Um, we have to, you know, we kind of have, I see Christians having to think like, I have to have absolutely none of those feelings or somehow I have failed God. So let me give you a definition that I think will help give you perspective. Here's the first perspective. 
If David would have had the definition of fearing not like some of us have, then why did he run out of the palace? You see, some of us Christians have this thought that we have any kind of feelings, we do anything other than just stand true, then somehow we're living our fear. Well, if that's true, why would David run out of the palace? Why would, why would David be on the run? Why would David be hiding? Why wouldn't David just stood in the palace at the front door? Open the door. Thousands coming at him. Open the door and say, I'm not afraid. I will trust God. But he actually runs and hides. So first of all, that should give you great hope. Great hope when you have a tendency to run and hide. Here's the definition that will help you. A definition of don't be afraid that you need to hear. Here it is. Not being afraid means this. I will not let my fear dictate how I act, how I live, how I feel, and ultimately question my trust in God. I will not let fear undermine my life. I will not let fear dictate how I act, how I live, how I feel, and ultimately how I trust God. That means not living in fear. I mean, you're going to have some of those feelings, absolutely, but I will not let that determine how I act. I'll not let that determine how I feel. I will not let that determine how I will live my life. So let's get to the end of this letter. Jesus says in verse 10, back to verse 10, he says a couple of things. He says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. And then he says, I tell you, the first thing I want you to know as we kind of wrap up here, if we close, the first thing he says, Jesus has some things I want to tell you. And what he tells you, you wish he wouldn't. But what he tells us is, you're going to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. So he starts by saying, I have something to tell you. I have to tell you, you are going to be persecuted. I've always appreciated the truth and honesty of Scripture. Sometimes I appreciate it less than others. <laughs> this would be one of those moments. But I like the fact that God is absolutely honest with us. But now catch this. If Jesus says, I, I know and I want to tell you, you're going to be persecuted, you are going to suffer, then why are so many Christians so surprised when it comes? Why are so many Christians acting like it should never happen to them? In fact, in this letter to Jesus, he actually names and actually acknowledges the basic ways in which Christians are persecuted. I mean, he hits them. He says, you're going to be, some kind of, you're going to be persecuted, persecuted by the government? It says some are thrown in prison. By the culture, it says they were poor because culturally the whole culture was against them so they wouldn't give them jobs. He said you're going to be persecuted at times by people. Uh, they're going to say things about you. And he says also the evil one behind all, all is, is Satan. He even tells us how we can expect to be, be persecuted. Not where it will come from, but how. He says some by, by deprivation. You're going to be persecuted at times because people are going to take your jobs away. They're going to take your money away, their wealth away. Some of you buy words. They're going to say things about you. Some of you, they're going to take away your rights. They're going to put you in prison. Some of you, even by death. It's estimated that 70 million people have been martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ through history. In fact, it's estimated that about 100,000 a year in this past year have given their lives up for the cause of Christ. Now, please remember, we are not persecuted here like other places in the world. But Jesus says, yes, I'll tell you the first thing. You are going to suffer and you are going to be persecuted. Now, he does say for 10 days. Some of you go, oh, I can do 10 days. Uh, so, that just, it's not a literal 10 days, but it does mean for a short period of time. And if that makes you feel good, like, oh, it's a short period of time, I will say it is a short period of time, especially in light of eternity. So in light of eternity, it might be short period of time, but when you're going through it, it might seem long. Let me give you the second thing he says. The last thing he says is this. I need to tell you, you are going to be persecuted, but then he says, I also need to say to you, be faithful. Why? Because this is not the end. In fact, he says again in verse 10, back to that same verse. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil put some of you in prison to test you. You'll suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Listen, when in the moments of suffering, would you please look up and look forward and remember, this is not home. 
I did my uncle's, uh, Diane's uncle's uh, funeral service, Uncle Merle. All his kids participated, three kids all participated. One spoke, two of them sang. They sang a duet together of an old hymn that they wanted to sing because it represented their dad, it represented even their faith very well. It's not all that old, written 1952. But just listen to the words of this, uh, this, this, this song they sang. My heart can sing when I pause to remember. A heartache here is but a stepping stone. Along a trail that's winding always upward, this troubled world is not my final home. The things of earth will dim and lose their value if we recall they are borrowed for a while. And the things of earth that cause the heart to tremble, remember there will only bring a smile. This weary world with all its toil and struggle may take its toll of misery and strife. The soul of man is like a waiting falcon when it's released, it's destined for the skies. And then the chorus is this. But until then, my heart will go on singing. Until then, with joy, I'll carry on. Until the day my eyes behold that city. Until the day God calls me home. Catch those words? This troubled world is not my final home. All the, these heartaches, they're just a stepping stone. Always moving upward. The things of this earth that cause my heart to tremble, remembered there, will only bring a smile. Remember these words, my final, my final slide on the screen. I will not let fear dictate how I act, how I live, how I feel, and how I trust God. Let me give you a final story from this church of Smyrna, the story of a guy's name, Polycarp. Polycarp is the name of a guy. In fact, he was the pastor. He was the leader in the church of Smyrna. We believe that Polycarp was actually mentored by the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation. We actually believe that he was mentored by John. We actually believe that he was a member of the church in Smyrna when this letter would have been sent to them. So he would have seen this letter first time it was written. He would have heard this letter, this letter read aloud when he was in the church. Um, he was not just a member of the church, but he grew to be a leader, leader in the church, pastor and bishop of Smyrna. On February 22nd, A.D. 156, Polycarp was arrested for being a Christian. He was brought to the main amphitheater in town, full of people to stand before the authorities. The accusation, he was a follower of Christ. And they said to him this, renounce your faith or die. They even took into account his old age. He was 86. They even said this to him, and we have this history, history is recorded. They even said this to him, we know that you're old, we got it. So just bow your head quickly to Caesar. And this thing will be done, and you can get on with your life. Polycarp would not bow. He would not renounce his faith. In fact, he said one of the most famous statements in all of Christian history. Here were his words. Before the authorities, before the amphitheater full of people, he said, 80 and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I will not. What a picture of faithfulness. See, he knew that this world was not his final home. For me, my wording would be, it's been 50 and 6 years that I have served him. Not since I was born, since I gave my life to Jesus Christ. It's been 50 and 6 years that I have served him. And never has he failed me. I mean, he sustained me every single day, all the days of my life. So what would your number be? 10 and 6 years? 6 years? 3 months? 30 and 6? 60 and 6? What would your story be? All our lives, he has been faithful. You can trust him. Whatever you face, you can trust him.
I'm going to ask our team, only fitting that going to close us in a song, but here's the deal. If you are facing a moment in your life of suffering, something where you're saying, oh God, I don't want to go through this. Would you claim this song? You know it. You'll know the words real quickly and easily. Would you claim the song as yours in this moment? As you cling hold of God in this moment. You stand if you would. Team, lead us. my case, it would be 50 and 6 years that I have served you. You've been faithful every single day. For the person this morning that is just stuck in the trap right now just of life, just wondering where the future is going to go, might they claim hold of these truths. You are faithful in their life and they can trust you with their tomorrows. Thank you for your words to a suffering church. Thank you for your words to us for we need to hear them today. We are encouraged by them. Our hearts and our lives are changed by them. We realize that this is not our home. We look forward to the day when we're home with you. Until then, our hearts will sing and we will be faithful as we follow you. Dismiss us today in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.